Well, good evening. Good to see all of you tonight. Revelation chapter 13 tonight. We're studying the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this chapter could be a little bit of a challenge in that it primarily talks about two members of the satanic trinity. But we're still going to concentrate on Jesus tonight. That's the problem is sometimes even Christians spend more time focusing on the Antichrist than the real Christ. And we don't want to do that. We, we want to know what the Bible says because it's a, there's a reason why God gives us this information. And what John is seeing here in Revelation chapter 13 is, are these beasts that are ascending out of the sea and out of the earth. They become the two sort of end-time world rulers. They are known in other ways as the Antichrist and the false prophet. As we go through this chapter tonight, I want to mark some things by using words that begin with the letter C to sort of give us markers about things, to be able to sort of relate to them. And and also because what we're going to be talking about tonight is happening in the tribulation, and I don't believe we're going to be in the tribulation. I also, though, want to take the principles that we're seeing here in this passage and somehow apply them to where we are today and get some real practical application out of a chapter that is yet to take place, and yet you and I, I think, can gain some insight from it. Let me begin by saying this. In verse 1 of Revelation 13, 1, John sees a beast coming out of the sea. Well, you'll notice at the end of chapter 12, the dragon, Satan, was standing on the sand of the seashore. I think the implication here is that the dragon is summoning the beast out of the sea. We know that because at the end of verse 2, it is the dragon, Satan, who's giving the beast his power, his throne, his great authority to rule which obviously also is under the sovereignty of God. So you have this beast coming out of the sea, the Antichrist. Then in verse 11, you have another beast coming out from the earth. That is the one who's referred to as the false prophet. And therefore, as Satan, the Antichrist, and false prophet, they form what we would know as the unholy trinity or the satanic trinity if you will. Let me just quickly share a couple things about the Antichrist. I want to divide this up into sort of three sections. First of all, key designations of the Antichrist in the Bible. He is known by different designations. In Daniel, he's called the little horn, okay? Daniel chapter 7. In Thessalonians, he's called the man of lawlessness, in 1 John, he's referred to as the Antichrist. And here in Revelation 13, the beast out of the sea. You and I more commonly know him as the Antichrist, but it's good to know that in other parts of the Bible, he's called different things. The little horn, the man of lawlessness, and the beast out of the sea. Those are the key designations of this final coming world ruler. Now I want to share key descriptions. As I said last week, Antichrist 
is first of all a present impersonal presence in the world. 1 John 4, 3, John says that the spirit, even though the the literal Antichrist is not yet on earth ruling the earth or ruling the world, that the spirit of Antichrist is already here, laying the foundation for the coming world rule. And we see that more and more in our day. We see how things are setting up in the world to be able to, in a sense, hand over the nations to, and you can see the one world philosophy that keeps, you know, penetrating our culture and our world system. Everything is about getting us all into a a one world government and a one world religion, and that's where we're moving to. That's the spirit of the Antichrist that is moving the world in that direction. But the Antichrist is also a literal person, as we read about in the Bible, the beast out of the sea, Revelation 13. But Antichrist is also a political power, a political power. And we're going to see that in Revelation chapter 17 when we get there. He is both an impersonal presence, a literal person, and a political power. Those are the key descriptions. And then finally, key definitions of the term antichrist. It means two things. It means one who is against Christ, opposing Christ, but Antichrist also means one who is in the stead of or in place of Christ. And I actually prefer that designation or that definition even more than against for this reason. Because we know that Satan is a deceiver, most of the time he's not going to have a frontal assault and say, oh, you know, hate Jesus or put Jesus away and all that. All he'll do, though, is keep offering us distractions and things and other idols and putting them into our life so that Jesus does not occupy his proper place. So that we love or worship or adore someone or something other than Jesus, you see. As long as Satan can get something in place of Jesus, he feels like he's won, he's accomplished Something, and we'll talk more about that later. So that, in a sense, the Antichrist, along with the false prophet, along with Satan, formed this unholy trinity, this satanic trinity, and they are the ultimate counterfeit of the holy trinity. God the Father, Satan, Antichrist, Jesus Christ, false prophet, Holy Spirit. Because if you study Revelation 13, and we're not going to take a lot of time to do this tonight, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is very similar to the 
So the ministry of the false prophet is very similar to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the sense of that he tries to get everybody in the world to worship the Antichrist. And we know that the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is trying to get everyone focused on Jesus Christ, you see. So there is similarities there. Counterfeit. Satan is a master counterfeiter. Cheap counterfeits, but counterfeits nonetheless. And you and I have to be aware of that. That's something that you and I can practically apply to our lives. Is even today, even before the actual Antichrist comes on the world scene, Satan is trying to get people and Christians to buy into his counterfeits rather than the real Jesus, if you will. And you and I have to be aware of that. That leads me to my next C word, and that's the word contrast. What I want us to begin to see here is the contrast between these beasts, that's how they're described, compared to Jesus, you see. Because notice, these two future world rulers are described as beasts. Think about that. Why would God describe the Antichrist and the false prophet as beasts? Because they act like beasts. They act like animals. They are fierce. They are hateful. They are tenacious. They, they don't care about anybody but themselves. They're very self-serving. I mean, we could go on and they, they ascend and, and get this power and all they use their power for is to crush other people and to elevate themselves. Think about that in contrast to our Lord Jesus. He's beautiful. He's loving. He's kind. He's gracious. He's generous. He's everything that these beasts are not. Everything. And though he has all power in the universe, he did not use his almighty power to crush us. He used his power to become a baby. He used his power to take on humanity. He used his power to live amongst us. He used his power to allow himself to be nailed to a tree and to, be di and, and to die and to suffer. That's what he used his power to do, to save us. I mean, when you begin to think about why the Bible describes these future world rulers as such beasts, and you begin to see how it contrasts to, again, our beautiful, wonderful, great Savior that we've already sung about and worshiped tonight. Oh, my goodness. What could they ever offer us? And yet, we're going to find out tonight that so many in the world will just flock to worship them. They will reject the greatest love 
in Jesus they could ever experience, and they'll follow these beasts who couldn't care at all about them, who have no love for them at all, you see, who only want to rule over people to control them and manipulate them and and force them to, to worship them and do whatever their bidding is. What a contrast between Jesus and these beasts of Revelation. Well, follow along with me then as I just begin to read the first few verses of Revelation 13. Then John says, I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. By the way, to the Jew especially, the sea was a very dark and mysterious place. In fact, it still is. There's much today, even with all of our technology, that we know more about the stars and about the upper atmosphere than we do our oceans, especially the deep oceans. There's something very mysterious about that. It had ten horns and seven heads, and on its horns were ten diadem crowns, and on its head a blasphemous name. You see, they are united in their hatred and opposition to God. Now, the beast that I saw was like a leopard, but its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And the dragon gave the beast his power, his throne, and his great authority to rule. You don't have to take time there tonight to flip back here, but I want to read these verses to you from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, the arrival of the lawless one, again, another designation of the Antichrist, will be by Satan's working, supernatural activity, with all kinds of miracles and signs and false wonders in order to deceive those living on the earth. And with every kind of evil deception and delusion directed against those who are perishing because they found no place in their hearts for the truth so as to be saved. You see, the only way, Paul said, that there was any room or any inroad into their heart and into their mind for the deception of the Antichrist was because, first of all, they rejected the truth of God. Man abhors a vacuum. God created us as spiritual beings. We abhor vacuum. And if we do not fill the vacuum of our spirit with the word of God and the truth of God and the spirit of God, we will fill that vacuum with something else that we are seeking to satisfy and fulfill that God-shaped hole that only Jesus Christ can fill. That's the Antichrist. Back then to Revelation chapter 13. One of the beasts, verse 13 then, heads, appeared to have been killed, but the lethal wound had been healed. Again, notice something here. Maybe like a false resurrection, you know? But notice the power that God is allowing Satan to exert through the beast out of the sea. The whole world followed the beast in amazement. They were in awe and admiration of the Antichrist 
because of these miracles and these powers and these delusional signs that he was able to do through the supernatural power that was given to him from Satan. We're to be in awe and admiration of God. It's all about worship. Because you'll notice something different about the Antichrist compared to every other world ruler up to that point is no matter who they are, when they sit in power politically, they want to rule, obviously, and they want to exert the power that they have in that position. But no one yet in the world, except I guess you could say maybe Hitler, I don't know, maybe. But I don't even think he went this far. Said, I want you to bow down and worship me as God. But that's what the Antichrist is going to do. See, the Antichrist is going to demand absolute and total allegiance. And I'm going to use another C word then here, commitment. Commitment. Counterfeit, contrast, commitment. What this says to us even today is you and I have to truly be committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there's coming a day where the world is literally going to be forced to worship the beast or else. And we can see, though, how, even in our day, Satan will do everything he can to get us to worship something else or someone else other than Jesus. And you and I have to make sure that we are locked into our commitment to Christ. Even John said in 1 John 5, 21, little children, speaking to us as Christians, keep yourself from idols. Idols are not necessarily those little statues. It can be that. An idol is anything that takes the place of Jesus Christ in our life. You see, that's an idol. Anything that we give more time, energy, and attention to more than we do, Jesus becomes an idol. And notice, because they are in amazement, verse 4, they worship the dragon because he had given ruling authority to the beast, and they worship the beast too. By the way, this word worship is that word that literally means to adore, kissing the ground of. I mean, can you see it? They're just droves and droves of humanity just coming before the beast and falling down prostate and just, oh, you're just, you're, you're the best. You're, you're amazing. There's no one like you, which notice that's what they say. Look at verse 4. Who is like the beast? In contrast to Michael's name that we talked about last week, the name Michael, the archangel who fought Satan and, and Satan did not prevail and he left say, uh, heaven one last time, his name means who is like God. No, they're going to say who is like the beast. No one ever been like him. Who's able to make war against him? Who's more powerful than him? And that's why you and I, even today, before this day comes on earth, we need to make sure we're committed to the worship of Jesus Christ because Satan will always seek to draw us away from our worship. 
It is a battleground. Worship is a battleground because Satan will do anything and everything he can to keep us from worshiping Jesus Christ. Verse 5, the beast was given a mouth speaking proud words and blasphemies, and he was permitted to exercise ruling authority for 42 months. So the beast opened his mouth to blaspheme, literally slander and belittle God, to blaspheme both his name, which is above every name, and even his dwelling place, heaven, and that is those who dwell in heaven. And the beast was permitted by God to go to war against the saints and conquer them for a time. He was given ruling authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. The ability and strength to hold submissive to his will and his will alone, people from all over the world. And once again, verse 8, all those who live on the earth, they won't just follow him. They won't, they will worship him. See how important worship is? Even Satan understands the importance of worship because he's trying to draw all people one day to worshiping his counterfeit instead of worshiping the real deal, Jesus Christ. Even Satan tried to get Jesus to do that, right, when he was here on earth through his temptation. Bow down, Jesus, and worship me, and Jesus would have none of it. He didn't care about earthly kingdoms. He knew one day he was going to rule an eternal kingdom forever and ever. And then I love this. Everyone whose name has not stood written since the foundation of the world in the book of life belonging to the Lamb who was killed who was slaughtered, who was butchered, is what the word means. Let me ask you a question tonight, most important question. And this comes to the other C word, circumvention. <laughs> the reason I use that word is because to circumvent something means to try to avoid it, right? <laughs> There's one decision that every human being cannot avoid. Even if we think we're avoiding it, it's unavoidable. And that question is, what will you do with Jesus? Because even a human being who says, I'm going to put that decision off, or I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to make a decision, you've made your decision. Every human being has to come to a place in their life where they either choose Jesus or not. It's the biggest decision every one of us is going to make in our life. Everything else in our life on earth and our eternal destiny rests on that decision of Jesus Christ. And so I just want to ask you tonight and ask those of you that are watching tonight, do you belong to the Lamb? Do you know for sure that your name is written in that book of life that, by the way, notice was written there? before the foundation of the world. Why? Because God knew who would be saved before we ever committed our life to Christ. That's why. Think about it. God was able to look down the corridors of time and know who would accept his son 
And your name and my name, if we're true believers, has already been written there and been written there for a long, long time. It stands written. Do you belong to the Lamb? Not to the beasts, but to the Lamb. The one who is everything that the beasts and Satan are not. No human being can avoid that decision. None of us. We cannot circumvent it. We can't hide from it. We can't avoid it. Every one of us makes that decision in our heart before we pass on into eternity. Which leads to the other C word here in this passage, cost. Notice something. Again, because of the sovereignty of God in his plan, verse 7, the beast was permitted to go to war against the saints and for a time conquer them. So then notice verse 9 in the context of that. God says, if anyone has an ear, he had better listen, better hear God's voice and respond in faith. Are we willing to follow Jesus no matter what the cost? Because come tribulation, here's what's going to happen to those. But even today, are we willing to follow Jesus no matter what the cost? So he says in verse 10, if anyone is meant for captivity, in other words, if being a prisoner in prison is part of God's plan into captivity, you're going to go. If that's God's will for you, John's basically saying you need to embrace it. And here's the next one. If it's part of God's plan for you during this time to be killed by the sword, then guess what? By the sword, he must be killed. There are going to be many who have to lose their life by not taking the mark of the beast and being martyred for Christ during this time. But you and I, how can we apply this to our life? Same thing. There's still a cost involved in following Christ, even before this time. Are we willing to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, no matter what it costs? and willing to embrace whatever God's will is for our life, knowing that he has this plan in order that's best for us and that will bring glory to him. I think of Job. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm going to continue, Job says, to worship my God, even though I don't understand why this happened or whatever. I'm just going to trust him. No matter what the cost, no matter what I have to go through, if I truly worship him and I'm committed to him, then I'm committed to him all the way, no matter what. Because here's the principle. God may call us to suffer, but the reward for our suffering is massively disproportionate to the glory one day we're going to receive for all of eternity. The reward of our suffering is massively disproportionate to the suffering itself. Let me take you to two scriptures that emphasize this. Keep your finger in Revelation 13 and go with me, first of all, to Romans 8.18. Romans 8.18, it's a verse that I've used a lot through our study of, but I want you to see it with your own eyeballs tonight. Paul 
Paul says in Romans 8.18, for I consider that our present sufferings cannot even be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. Again, God in his word is not minimizing our suffering, our pain, or what we go through. He is maximizing the glory. Maximizing the glory. That the glory dwarfs our present suffering. And then go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. For our momentary light suffering is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, because we are not looking at what can be seen, but what it cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, what cannot be seen is eternal. He's simply saying, look, even if you and I suffer for our whole earthly life, it is still light compared to the weight of the glory, and it's definitely temporary compared to eternity. And that's why Jesus calls us to total commitment and says, are you willing to take up your cross and follow me no matter what the cost? Because we certainly see that cost here in Revelation 13, because when the Antichrist rules, he will rule with no mercy. He will rule with no regard for anyone other than himself. So that's why, then, if you go back to Revelation 13, look at verse 10 at the end. This requires steadfast endurance and faith from the saints. A courageous resolve and supernatural staying power that comes only from God. And guess what? We need that today, too. We need that same steadfast endurance and faith in Jesus Christ today. That no matter what, we'll follow you, Jesus, no matter what. We'll follow you into the furnace. We'll follow you into the lion's den. We'll follow you anywhere, Jesus. Doesn't matter because the glory dwarfs the suffering. God, give us that courageous resolve and that staying power that we need. A couple others tonight that I want to share with you. The false prophet comes on the scene, verse 11, the beast coming up out of the earth. He exercised, verse 12, all the ruling authority of the first beef and made the earth and those who inhabit it worship the first beast whose lethal wound had been healed. Notice that he performs momentous signs, even making fire come down from heaven in front of people. And by the signs, he was permitted, notice, to perform on behalf of the beast, to deceive those who live on the earth. Next, C word, consciousness. We need to be conscious Christians that are aware of the deception and the delusion that is even here in the world today because the spirit of Christ, Antichrist, is already here. 
In fact, if you go back even to verse 11, notice the description of the false prophet. He has two horns like a lamb. He looks like a friend, but he speaks like an enemy because he speaks like a dragon. Even in his appearance, the false prophet is deceptive. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by the miracles and wonders and signs that he is able to perform. Those that live on the earth, they make an image, a figure, a likeness, a representation of the beast who had been wounded by the sword and still lived. And notice the second beast, verse 15, was empowered to give life to this image, this statue. Think about it, a statue coming alive in some way. Maybe some kind of like avatar. I, I don't know exactly, obviously with our modern technology, but in some way it just, again, just causes the earth and the people of the earth to just be in such awe and admiration of what's going on here. And I think to myself, our God, we should live in awe and admiration of him every day. He's the wonder, not the beasts. And even the power that they have, is only because he permits them to have this power, if you will. We need to be conscious of this world of delusion and deception that we live in. In fact, even Sunday in my son's message here, he'll be talking a little bit about how we need to be aware of being deceived, even as Christians. And then coming up in the Next couple of weeks when I get back on Sunday in 2 Corinthians chapters 10 and 11, it talks a lot about how we as Christians need to be aware that Satan can transform himself into an angel of light and his ministers can transform themselves into angels of light. And we have to be aware and conscious at all times that we live in a world of delusion and deception. In fact, the name of the earth itself, cosmos, the world, speaks about that. The Greek word cosmos for world is where we get our world, a word cosmetic from. Surface. But what's below the surface? And see, all that Satan wants us to do is concentrate on just what's exterior, what's on the surface. He never wants us to go below that. Why? Because when Satan comes... He comes like the fisherman who has that beautiful bait on that hook, and he wants us to be like fish who grab the bait and miss the hook. We've got to be conscious of these things. And then finally, calculate. One of the things that people get caught up with more than maybe any other thing in the book of Revelation is the number of the beast. Six, six, six. It is talked about all over the place. Well, let's just talk about it for a minute tonight. First of all, in verse 16, the false prophet causes everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to obtain a mark on their right hand or on their forehead, giving irrefutable proof that they are connected to the worship of the Antichrist. And if one is not willing to get this mark, then they are not allowed to buy or sell things unless he bore the mark of the beast. By the way, can I insert this here? There are things happening in our world today that are setting up the world 
to come to a place of worldwide compliance to something, but none of the things that are going on today, even in the midst of this whole pandemic and all that, and the fact, none of that is the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is specifically a mark that will be given by the false prophet to the worshipers of the Antichrist in order for them to be able to buy and sell goods during the tribulation period. You and I will not be around for the mark of the beast. We also will not be around when the beasts of the sea and the earth arise. And I personally believe that only those who are alive during that time will be able to know once they ascend to power, oh, that's the Antichrist based upon 666. I don't think you and I can know who that is on this side of the tribulation. I think when they get to that time, they're going to be able to read this and understand, oh, that's how we're going to be able to identify him. And it's going to give them the insight that they need during this time. What we can glean from this number is this. If the number seven in the Bible is the number of perfection, then 666 simply reminds us this is the number. In fact, he even says it here in verse 18. This is man's number. This is the number of humanity. This is the number of imperfection. No matter how long you keep adding sixes, it never adds up to seven. In a sense, he's saying, even the best counterfeits that Satan could ever come up with don't even come close to Jesus Christ. Because you know what? I want to end with this tonight. Jesus Christ has a number as far as I'm concerned in the Bible. And it's not so much the number seven, even though that's the number of perfection, as much as it's the number one. Jesus Christ has a number. It's number one. Let me share those passages with you. Turn with me to the book of Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And begin following with me in verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for all things in heaven and on earth were created by him, all things, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions, whether principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He himself then is before all things, and all things are held together in him. He is the head of the body, the church, as well as the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, and here it is, so that he himself may become what? First in all things. Number one, preeminent. The Antichrist may have a number. Big deal, 666. He's imperfect. My Jesus, your Jesus has a number. It's number one. He's number one. He is to occupy first place in our church, first place in our lives, first place in the universe. And then turn with me back just one book to the book of Philippians, to Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 8, and I'll end here. Speaking of Jesus, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as a result, God exalted him and gave him the name that is over and above superior to every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Number one. Satan in all his power could only bring about a very short-lived world ruler, a world ruler that's going to rule for a few years on an earth that one day God is going to destroy. Big deal. Your Jesus and my Jesus is going to rule over an everlasting, eternal kingdom that has no end. That's why he deserves all of our worship. Not the Antichrist, not some cheap counterfeit that Satan throws out there to the world, but the Lord Jesus Christ. And so tonight, folks, let's go home filling our hearts with the worship of Jesus Christ. Let's turn other people's hearts to the worship of Jesus Christ. Let's not allow them to go out into eternity worshiping beasts when they could worship the beautiful one and only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who loves them more than anyone ever will or could. God, we thank you tonight that even in this chapter that talks a lot about beasts, God, we still see you above it all. We see you through it all, God. Because, Lord, it's only because of you that we all sit here, stand here, Lord, with hope, with salvation, with forgiveness of sins, with the future prospect of an eternal kingdom, with glory that awaits us, God. It's all because of you. It's nothing that we've done, God. It's only because we belong to the Lamb and our names are written in the book of life that is in heaven, God. And we thank you for that. And I pray, God, tonight that every last person, whoever hears my voice during this message, God, make sure that their name is written in that book of life because there's no way to avoid that decision. Every human being will have to make that decision. It's not a decision that we can bypass. It's not a decision that we can ultimately put off. It's not a decision that we can hide from. All of us one day are going to be confronted with Am I for Jesus or not? Is he my Savior or not? And God, I pray that more and more people will come to know you and belong to you, God, instead of having to suffer the terrible fate of being subjects of these beast kingdoms and receiving the mark of the beast. God, encourage us and strengthen us, God, May we have that steadfast endurance and faith in you that we need even today, God, before the tribulation comes. May we be committed to you and to you alone, and may we be willing to count the cost, Lord, for what it means to follow you and be willing to follow you, God, no matter what it is. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here tonight. I'll see you next Wednesday. God bless.